Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is your host, Hayden Bow, and today is a special episode. We brought back one of our Hybrid OG members. Uh, he was on the first uh, episode that we ever recorded uh, back at the old studio, Marcus Leone. We also have Sonny Webster, a former Olympian in Olympic weightlifting. Uh, he's been in town for a while. We've been hanging out and training with him. He's on the podcast today, too. We talk about all things training, weightlifting, powerlifting, business. We even get a little philosophy in there. Sonny's got a lot of great insight about being uh, a Olympic weightlifter at the highest level and transitioning into being a successful entrepreneur. So you guys are definitely going to want to hear this one. As always, take a screenshot of the episode while you're listening, throw it up on Instagram uh, in a post or in a story, tag me, tag Steffi, tag Hybrid Unlimited, and you'll be entered in a draw to potentially win some hybrid uh, legacy brand apparel, which is the official apparel of the Hybrid uh, Unlimited podcast, as well as Hybrid Performance Method as a whole. Uh, also, while you're at it, check us out at hybridstrengthcoach.com. Uh, we are your one-stop shop for all things fitness and strength, from strongman programs written and coached by the one and only Eddie Hall, to powerlifting coached by Steffi, uh, to uh, super total programs, our hybrid performance program, and everything in between. Check us out, and I will see you guys in the episode. What's up, everyone? It's your favorite podcast producer, Nick Tricana, here to give you a word from our incredible sponsor over at Element. Listen, you're not getting enough electrolytes or salt in your diet. I see it, Steffi sees it, Hayden sees it, we all see it. Element is an electrolyte drink mix with no sugar, no artificial ingredients, and no BS. Everyone needs electrolytes, especially those on low-carb diets, practice intermittent fasting, are physically active, or sweat a lot. But don't just take my word for it. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. U.S. Olympians, players in the NFL, NBA, NHL, and even our own special forces drink Element. I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm the pinnacle of self-performance, but ever since Steffi turned me on to Element, I've seen vast improvements in my everyday training and recovery. You guys can try Element today with a totally risk-free, no-questions-asked refund policy. And you know what? Because we love y'all so much over here at Hybrid Unlimited, we're going to hook you up with a free sample pack of Element just for you. Each sample pack includes eight grab-and-go packets in a variety of different flavors. All you have to do is go to drinkelement.com hybrid. That's drinklmnt.com slash hybrid. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash hybrid for your free sample pack of eight grab-and-go element packets. Stay salty, my friends. Now back to the podcast. Um, who else was on that show? I try to block that out of my memory. Oh, man. Did you I guys ever see that? What's that? The, the Jersey Shore? Yo, we, dude, religiously, I used to watch it. No, I mean... Oh them! He well, have here. you seen their their British version? No, it's actually a <laughs> it's yeah. Butt, it's yeah. called the it's, <laughs> it's called the Geordie Shore, and it's just the Jersey Shore, but there. But they have so much uh, like UK lingo. Mm. I was like watching it for like you know just for fun to see what it was about, and I pick up like ten words in the first episode. I swear, anyone that spends any consistent time in the UK all of a sudden starts speaking completely different. <laughs> what instead of like hooking up or whatever, they would call it tashing on. Tashing on. Tashing that is such on. a northern lingo, though, because it completely depends whether you're from up north or down south as to how you speak. I was trying to explain to someone the other day where I'm from is right in the centre, Reading, Wokingham area. So I've got a really neutral accent. But if you go like two hours north, Scouser, completely different accent. If you go 
two hours west, then it's like West Country Cider in a Mass or is that like that? Okay. <laughs> then right, you go right. two hours east, it's like Cockney Fat in London, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand All in the space of, of like... <laughs> well, it's just, just like here, hours. right? It's like... Oh, for sure. Like, there's like a few places that are, are all pretty like neutral sounding, like... Uh, like aside from like the real heavy like Bronx accent, like New York is pretty neutral. California is yeah. pretty like non-regional. I've been most of the Midwest, but I bet if you go to Louisiana or Mississippi or, oh, yeah. or probably some parts of Texas, I bet Sonny's been to more of those places than either you, either probably. you or me. Well, dude, even you get you get off at the wrong exit going up in northern Florida. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> the second you leave Whoa. Palm Beach County, man, you are in dude, the that's middle like, uh, of nowhere. What's that movie? You get off in like Ocala, uh, no shade to Ocala, but if you get off there <laughs> in the, like the rural spots, it's like, I feel like, uh, what's the movie? The Waterboy. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> it's mean, like that, right? That was rural Louisiana, but that might as well have been rural North Florida just the same. <laughs> You're just swamp life. <laughs> yeah. All right. Have, speaking of rural Louisiana, have you guys ever seen True Detective? Like the original True Detective no. series? Yeah. The first you guys one with... watch way more TV than me. Yeah, dude. <laughs> right, I, yeah, I get a couple fair. hours in every night. That's my go-to. Yeah, it's it's worth it. Matt McConaughey, Woody Harrelson, just yeah, crush yeah. it. It was a great series. I'm I'm halfway through it. Oh, you are. Yeah, you're watching it right now. Well, so I started it in Toronto, but the subscription service that I have in Toronto is different. Like they don't carry over. Yeah, yeah. I, I hate that. I have I don't like, know why Netflix does that. The whole world. So from yeah, there. So we don't have HBO in Canada. We have a different. It's like Crave or Crackle or something. That oh. is, it is the same thing, but like your subscriptions don't like cross border, so. I have to like. I don't like that. I don't remember where I was. It's a whole thing, you know. At the end of the day, I just want to come in and turn it on. I don't want to have right. to like watch half it's an like episode time. and then be like, "Oh, I, I've already seen it." Well, Sonny, when you get a chance, it's worth it. It's a okay. good show. Okay. It is. It's very like uh, they call it noir filmmaking, and don't ask me what that means. That's noir. Just what, yeah, I don't know what that. Was that means. Like, just like dark? It's kind of dark and moody the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He's got this. He's like this very. Uh, almost like pseudo philosophical character that Matt McConaughey plays. Mm. Anyways, totally I, worth a watch. I can get behind any Woody Harrelson character too. Yeah, he's great. He's a piece of shit in that whole show. Yeah, he is. And he kind of slightly redeems himself at the end, but it's worth watching. <laughs> okay. What, dude, I just that. saw one recently, D.B. Cooper. About I just watched the first episode of that, yeah. I saw that. I got sucked in. I killed that in a day. <laughs> oh, shit. It's, it's about the guy. Yeah. that's a, What's it on? Like uh, ne- that's it's a on Netflix. Netflix, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a they good one. They did something well. Oh yeah. Oh good. Well, Netflix has a lot of ones as well. Yeah, they 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 bomb on a bunch. That's because they they've been pushing a lot of agendas lately. By far, don't fuck with ta- cats is the is the best thing on Netflix. Yeah, watch that. Oh, that that's rocked me. That did. I was just like every episode was just like whoa whoa. What's crazy <laughs> yeah. is that guy lived in Toronto. So like when they're pointing out. Like all the, yeah, the different yeah. areas, I was like, "Oh shit!" I like know exactly I don't where think that I is. I made it to the end. I watched about half of it. They get them. They, get, they get them. Yeah. The internet people get them. Yeah. Well, dude, there's this one guy who's like, they really don't tell you much about him, but he clearly works for some sort of like intelligence <sighs> company or whatever. Yeah. And they, they, he's like the only one in the in the show that they give him a fake name. You can see him, but they don't say who he works for, and yeah. they don't say like what exactly he does. But and he's he's all coy about like what his job yeah. description is. But he is like this huge driver behind. A fan of cash, you know? yeah. It must be a big cat, big cat, big cat, guy. Big cat guy. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. But yeah, the DB Cooper one was cool. That's 
a nut story. Do you know what that is? Oh, you saw the first well, I, episode. I knew the I knew the storyline of it. Before, Dude, somehow I missed that. I never yeah, ever I, heard that story until it's an I American just clicked thing. it. Crazy. I mean, it's kind of an American thing. I don't know if it was this big like internationally, but it was a crazy story. People talk about him like he's a, a hero. I mean, to get away with what we go away if it's pretty good. Hundred percent on terrorists, but. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think any story where somebody robs a corporation of money nowadays is regarded as a folk hero. Yeah, even actually. if he hijacked an airline with probably dynamite strapped to his chest, they're probably going to yeah. still consider him a hero. Even I, I think they be. liked him because no one was physically harmed. Yeah, I guess he was kind of chill about that. Right? No just, murders, no stabbings. And that when they're interviewing the uh, uh, flight attendant... At the, at the end, she's like, yeah, he was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> he was actually really nice, just was calm about the whole thing. I, I guess, like, I mean, if you're going to do it, you might as well be confident in your plan. He, I, he was, apparently. I don't think he could do that the, this day and age. You know what the funniest part about that was? His name was not, the DB part mm. was a mistake. That was not his name. His name was Dan Cooper. And then when they the... stuck a B in there for laugh. Well, like, someone wrote it down in, like, a report... And when they were reading it, it was like written poorly. So the person just was trying to make it out and said DB Cooper. And then it just sounded cooler than Dan Cooper. So <laughs> even after the first like press release, they knew he wasn't DB Cooper, but they just kept calling him that for like until today, like <laughs> decades later. Dan Cooper. Sounds like a guy who'd get knocked out in the first round of the fight. <laughs> not a very good fighter. <laughs> yeah, just like the every name yeah. journeyman type they just, guy. They just stick him in to, to fill somebody's roster. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Um, yeah, but to to the point, we've got Sonny Webster in the house. <laughs> 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 to get there. <laughs> yeah. What's up, Sonny? Yeah, My man, boys. welcome. Welcome back. Um, you've been traveling lots. Sure have, man, making up for lost time. Well, that's right. How long were you guys under lockdown in the UK? Well, in Australia, it was a solid two years. Oh, sorry, Australia yeah, now. Solid two years. I've been in Australia now three years, so that's now home, I would call it. Two-thirds of your Australian experience has been locked up. First year, there was like horrific fires, so there was like yeah. no summer. Oh my then God, lockdown. Right. I'm yet to experience a summer in Australia. Hopefully this year will be it. Wow. Is it, are there still any restrictions there? No restrictions. It's... Totally Super chill like everywhere else now. Okay, that's funny you mentioned the fires because that was the last time that, or the only time Sebastian was in Miami that I saw him. And that he came here with the family. Uh, yeah. Must have been two and a half years ago now when yeah. all those fires were going on. They said he had to get out of Sydney. Yeah, it was so bad. Like, literally, you could hardly see the sky. Yeah. That's I remember seeing stuff on the news back then where people were like, the fire was coming towards them, so they all went to the beach. And yeah. then it got so bad they had to all go stand in the water. Yeah, it oh, was. Shit. And yeah. then there was so many people that just stayed to try and defend their houses. They just had no chance. What are you going to do defending your house from a against wildfire? Yeah. It's hard to comprehend the scale of it, I think. Yeah. Unless you're probably in there. But What was the cause of it again? Wasn't it like some mischief type situation? A lot of the time, it happens all the time in Australia. A lot of time it's people having campfires and not putting out, throwing yeah. a fag out the window and starting a fire could be numerous things but generally just that I guess, no war it's the same thing in the states in like california every, yeah, yeah every like catastrophic fire here it's just some dickhead in the woods just doing things improperly and just being careless yeah so it's, what's what was uh like the biggest difference for you going from uk culture to aussie culture 
because I feel like there's a lot of similarities, but I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, I think a lot of people always wonder what the difference is in in livelihood between England and you, England and Australia, because I think they're two places a lot of English people come to Australia to to live. And I would say for me, the biggest thing that's different is the quality of life. And I think like yeah. everyone lives a life in the UK that is very much they're working to live. Whereas in Australia, people have so many more other activities that they do. They live a much more laid back lifestyle compared to someone who maybe live in London. And you just get a higher quality of life. And that's the thing that I loved about it the most because you get an option at five o'clock living in Sydney if you clock off from work to go and jump in the sea and go for a swim have a couple of beers, the sun's still shining. It's not very often you could ever do that in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think that's weather related? Because I noticed that in a lot of Mediterranean countries, there's like a similar approach to lifestyle. Like if you go to Italy or Spain, Portugal, like they live life pretty similarly. And I wonder if like countries like the UK have that lifestyle kind of imbued in them because of the weather. Maybe Maybe not like a direct cause, but I wonder if it plays into it a little bit massively you know the effect that the weather has on like your mood and your emotion anyway like so for australians living in the sunshine all the time it definitely has an impact versus the uk for sure and i just think like people's options on a day that they have off in australia they can go out enjoy the weather enjoy the sun it's very rare in the uk other than this week <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. 40 degrees and you can enjoy <laughs> the uh, enjoy the weather i also feel like in general you're like pay to cost of living is a lot better in Australia in it, like in the fact that like look at uh, any of the trades like over there they call them tradies right yeah like all the tradies like they live well you know that they're not stressed out it's like there's not a as much of like a high pressure mentality to go and get an education like beyond high school there's apprenticeships there's like it's it's like the structure of it's much better was like if, if you're here and you're a carpenter or a plumber, unless you run your own uh, business, it's a grind. Like, it's not yeah. really affordable. And I think, I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but. I definitely think there's, it's much better balance in Australia. You can be working any job and live a very good quality of life. And that's what's really nice about it. Mm. Um, and I think the, the thing for me that I noticed massively when I moved over to Australia, I went with the same amount of money that I was on. And I was running out of money that I was living off fine in the UK halfway through the month because it's just so much more expensive. Like, wow. But people who live there, they don't notice it because they get paid appropriately for sure. the living costs. So it's definitely something that you, you, you take into account when you move there. But most people that are coming to Australia because the visa situation is so difficult there for people to get a visa, they either have to do farm work. But the maximum time they're staying there is like two years, which really affects the way in which people can enjoy Sydney or enjoy Australia full stop because there's always that shelf life on their time there unless they get sponsored by a job, which means they have to come there with skill or they get lucky and marry an Aussie girl or guy. <laughs> wow. So are you a, you're a permanent resident there now? I'm classed as a temporary permanent resident because I've got a New Zealand passport. So it kind of, they have a relationship in New Zealand and Australia where you can go hand in hand with those two countries. So my mom's from New Zealand. So I've got citizenship there, which just worked out handy. Oh, that's nice. So, but you met your girl, how'd you meet your girlfriend? Yeah, so I met my girlfriend on my tour in Australia in 2018. There was no intention to stay there at that point. Um, but we met when I was delivering seminars over there and that was it. And it was just fortunate that, you know, 
it was an easy decision for me to move there and give it a go because I had the passport. Were you still training then, full time? Um, no, I was still training probably the same way I train now. For right, complete just fun. fun. <laughs> yeah, it was actually so. I, the the time I was first here in Miami, I was pretty depressed. I think when I was here the first time because I'd literally just left Australia. I went to India and then flew to Miami for Waterpalooza. And I remember being here and being like, I don't want to, I'm in Miami, this is, should be sick. But right now I actually feel like drawn to being in Australia because mm. I'd had such an amazing time there. And I literally flew from here, packed my house up in a week and within the week flew to Australia. That was back in 18, right? Yeah. That was the last time I saw you, right? That was when I was locked out of the country for the first time. Nice. I missed that, remember? <laughs> I remember seeing you guys, like you guys look like you were having so much fun. You're lifting the gym. Clarence oh, was man. like, I'll, I'll try sumo deadlift for the first time and did like 700 pounds. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking freak. <laughs> yeah. First yeah. time ever. He's just crazy. Yeah, he really is. I told you the other day I went and trained with him and like, because he's getting even more aloof now. Like the longer <laughs> he's in the game, the likelihood of seeing Clarence in public or doing anything is super rare and i went <laughs> went and trained with him the other day and he's just like oh got a bad shoulder and he's just like pumping out like 230 squats for five and then he's like snatching 140 like no problem his ability to just throw weight and look like harry potter at any point <laughs> like, yeah. he really does he's like a jack terry potter i liked how much he didn't care like his like he i felt like he never had that much of an attachment to showing off or posting anything and like I feel like that's a good place to be as a strength athlete because it gives you this this kind of detached or unattached, whatever, unattached uh, feeling toward weightlifting. You don't have to hit this certain number. Because, like, you know, when you're on that competitive grind and you're like, I know what people are, that I'm competing with, this is what they're doing. You know, like I felt like with him, he never had to prove anything. That's why people love him, like, I yeah. think. And I think that's why people do because... I think you have to be, and I'm sure Clarence won't mind me saying this, you have to be a little bit weird to do weightlifting. Like I've done it for a majority of my life. To want to grind being a weightlifter for very little reward, normally training on your own, for very little recognition, you have to be a little bit tapped in the head. <laughs> and like, I've done it for 17 years, you know, and Clarence probably very similar amount of time. You don't do it because you're looking for that, the fame or the money, because you're definitely in the wrong sport if you're, <laughs> if you're sure. looking for that. But I think he was one of the first people in the YouTube world to start posting content that people could really resonate with, you know, showing his raw training sessions, even though the weights were just out of this world, even to like a really high level lifter at the time, you know, reflect mm. on the weights he was lifting was like, hang on a minute. But also the way that he was so like, I don't know. Like he made it fun, you know. Like yeah. you could watch him, and it's like relatable because he's not. You know, if you look at the old school Russians and Bulgarians, and even some of the modern day like top tier weightlifting athletes, like they're on a national team. You can tell that they have like a sponsored program through the state. Like they're working hand in hand with the government. Their lifestyle's taken care of. But if you just see a bunch of people like throwing down, having fun, especially see somebody like him, like that's inspiring. You know, it's it's similar in powerlifting. You just don't get recognized and nobody, yeah. it's, it, there's some people that care, mm -hmm. but there's, it's yeah. not that popular. I think like, you know, there's two types of people that I see like now that are interested in weightlifting. You've got CrossFitters, which are definitely more um, modernized in the way that, you know, pr kind of more like towards my type of audience, you know, um, 
But then the old school weightlifters that are like would watch Iron Mind videos, buy anti lifting shoes, yeah. purposely wear the same gym t shirt for three weeks in a row. The collared shirt. <laughs> the tight, <laughs> the tight, tight to the polo. The collared shirt. Like they just came from an office job and like, Dude, or like, this it, is or like it's like the rug, the long sleeve rugby shirt yeah. that's like a bit too big with the with the uh, what's it called? The gym like that now. That's kind but, of a gangster move now. Yeah, it is like a, a flex for like that type of person. And, and Clarence really spoke to that type of person. And, you know, I think that's really cool that he never, you know, hid who he, he was as a person and he stuck to being his own own way. And, like, people love that. And I think even now, you know, the respect that people have for him, even when he posts one video every six months, is pretty fucking cool. It's like, oh, this guy's still having fun doing this. That's probably why people relate to you because you go out and do this crazy stuff but it's fun. Like you're out there having fun, enjoying it. You're not sitting like, I know there's this tendency and you can speak to this, Hayden, Mm -hmm. like these old school weightlifters being miserable in a room, they go outside in between every set and they have a cigarette and they come back and it's like angry and not fun. And you know what I've noticed too, is this, the progression of a weightlifter, you start wildly enthusiastic, right? You're like, this is the best thing ever. You, you sleep in it. You're watching it on YouTube. Like I did the whole thing, right? And I like the people that you were talking about, the people who made it fun. So I would watch Cal Strength, you know, all the time when they had like Donnie Shankle, Kevin Cornell, Spencer Mormon, John North, all those guys. The best videos of all time. Yeah. And then I would watch guys like Clarence, Misha Kokleev, all those guys, right? Mm -hmm. But I like, dude, it just, it was, it consumed me, right? And then you get influenced by like the little bit older, more mature weightlifters who are always complaining. And you start complaining, like kind of in jest. You're like... Oh uh, yeah, it's like becomes cool to complain, right? Like to be like, yeah, weightlifting sucks. It's so hard. My knees hurt. Oh, everything hurts. <laughs> but like, I push through it anyways. But it's so easy to go from that step of like complaining and joking about it to just being the most miserable motherfucker in the gym. And it's like if you don't catch yourself, like eighty percent of weightlifters, I think, end up in that thing where they're yeah. just. But miserable. I think I think it's it's like you said, like if that's like one takeaway point, like people forget or lose sight of the fact that it's very much a luxury for us to be able to go into the gym and have the luxury to train. And like for 95% of people that perform the sport of Olympic weightlifting or even 99%, they're not trying trying to go to the Olympics. They're Mm. purely just training because it's a really beautiful sport if you can master it and arguably the most technical one that you can do of strength sports. But people lose sight of the fact that it is a luxury and that it should be enjoyed at whatever level you're doing it at. And I think it just really hits to the point that you were just saying there, because the most elitist people in the sport, the 1% that, you know, capture an audience are like, Mm. weightlifting hurts, it sucks. And they have that attitude. (laughs) People feel like it's something that they have to sort of take on if they're going to be great at the sport. But it's certainly not the case. You don't, you don't want to be the George Costanza of weightlifting. (laughs) Like... Oh, you, nobody he doesn't, he doesn't uh, know Seinfeld. Your girlfriend loves it though, right? Yeah. Just, just ask her. She'll know. Okay. You don't yeah. want to be the miserable dude in the corner. Because like, I could tell you the most fun I've ever had weightlifting. Because like, I weightlifted before I powerlifted. And then through hybrid over the years, you know, we have you and Fernando and Clarence coming in. And just all, we had a lot of good energy. So the most fun I ever had was just a bunch of dudes. You don't plan anything. You're like, oh, let's just see what we can do. Like the most oh, yeah. meathead, just fun way you could lift weights and you just one dude after another on a bar like there's nothing more fun than that but that's the thing like if you really think about like the things that make training fun for you the first thing that you mentioned there was the people you're with 
like and it's just something that's so overlooked when you're looking at like finding a training partner a gym that you want to go train at the importance of the people that are surrounding you when you're training is massive for your oh, enjoyment dude when i when i was training like at my most serious for olympic weightlifting and forgive me for saying Olympic weightlifting instead of weightlifting. That's okay. But <laughs> just thought he's gonna come over. I've, I've changed to saying that for the masses. For the masses, yeah. Uh, what like if you looked at my training time, it was super inconvenient. It was seven p.m. to eleven p.m. Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday with our coach, and then we had our own sessions that he programmed for us outside of that. But seven to eleven was terrible for me to get to because I had to come take a train to come back from school to go to this gym we trained you know I'm exhausted from being at university all day like mentally exhausted I'd go there 7 to 11 by the time you finish at 11 it's like I just finished training I'm not going to sleep for four hours like there's no way I'm gonna wind down mm -hmm. but the people that I was with made it so fun like every we would do a thing every single training session because our, our coach uh, was on the Hungarian national team so he was like a real old-school guy so everything we did if it was a complex if it was uh, just like a three rep for jerk no matter what it was we were pushing it to what he would call daily maxes so we we're going up as much as we can and whatever it, it is that we're doing for that day so we had it by weight class like each weight class had a handicap and then mm -hmm. the girls had an additional handicap. So it was like, we were always competing against each other. And like, you know, it was like, it was like playing a video game when you like, you know, you dunk on someone and you're in like yeah. NBA, and you're <laughs> like in your face or whatever. Like, you know, you just, it was a competitive, but like a really fun environment. And dude, it made the, it made all of that. Like I didn't even, at the time, didn't even think that like, oh, it's miserable that we're training so late. I think you it's know? a really interesting point that you kind of made there about creating that type of atmosphere in a gym but in a productive way because i think like one of the most important things about owning a gym or even and i don't own one but i've been in a lot of communities within gyms is being able to create that atmosphere that it's friendly competition because mm -hmm. i mean like for me as an outside looking in hybrid probably has some of the strongest people in the world training at that gym and it's definitely world renowned as one of the, the prime locations to go and train as are very other, various other gyms in the world. But one of the biggest things that each of those gyms has is that community of ridiculously strong people that help push each other on. Oh, yeah. And it's equally one of the things that I love about training at Sebastian's gym because I'm the weakest person in that gym when I go and train, like legit. And it means when you're squatting and you have to put on an extra 10 kilos that you don't feel like, oh. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, Bass, yeah. what are you doing today? <laughs> fuck <laughs> you know but it's such an important important concept isn't it for having a good atmosphere in the gym oh listen I, well, yeah. I, I've been you know five and a half years powerlifting and now I'm stepped away from it but I could say that every one of those Saturday sessions we had at our gym for the last oh, yeah. five years since the day it opened you know and I was lucky to be here since day one man like every one of those Saturday sessions or weekday training sessions we'd all be in there doing something like it could be us squatting and we'd all be prepping for a meet. You know, we'd have whatever, our respective weights on the bar doing our thing. You look over in the corner and it's like, what's that, Fernando's? He clean and jerking 240 kilos? Like, everybody's <laughs> yeah. just like, what the? Like, oh my God, that is a freak, you know? It's like that type of environment pushes you to be better. And whether you know it at the time or not, it, 
it creates you as an athlete. Because like I could, I, I tell people this all the time. Like if it wasn't for that environment, I don't know if I would have yeah. ever gotten as strong as I did in the sport. No, and and the the thing about like being around people all the time who like know what your max is, know when like when a set's getting heavy for you, like mm-hmm. all those things. It's like you know you can go and hop around different gyms, but it's if if you're some guy and your max squats 100 kilos and you have 90 kilos on the bar, mm-hmm. you know, and you're in a random gym, everyone's just like, oh, there's some guy squatting 90 kilos. But if you're in a gym where everyone knows, oh, that's a, that's a big lift for you and everyone gets behind you, it's way more inspiring. Yeah. But I think this is one of the most like, underrated elements of like when people look at like marginal gains of like how they can improve without necessarily getting a new coach, invest a shitload of money in kit, equipment or whatever it may be. Like for me, one of the most important things that I did later in my career was purposefully seek out people that would push me in areas that I were weaker weaker in. And for me, for the majority of my career, I would normally walk into the gym and be the heaviest lifter there. And it's not a great place to be in if you're trying to reach a height that you haven't reached before. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was so important i think the longer and longer i lifted for for like i said for a long while for me like breaking that 190 to 200 clean and jerk barrier a massive part of me being able to do that was surrounding myself by the people that were at sebastian's gym Mm -hmm. you know i knew strength was the thing that was holding me back from that Mm -hmm. spending time training with them three times a week made a huge impact on that and i think like a lot of amateur lifters now don't put themselves out there enough to go and seek out people that are actually going to challenge them and inspire them to move to the next level because they get comfortable lifting within the environment that they currently exist in. Yeah. And to also to your point, I, I've been thinking about this since you said it, like if you're around people that know you're lifting and like, yeah, they're constantly pushing you to be better. Like I remember I would ask you like every week, like, Hey, how'd that look? Like, do you think I'm safe to jump up to this weight? Cause like, you know, for the last mm-hmm. two years of my powerlifting run, when I was at my strongest, like Sebastian was coaching me and he would write my program. He would just put a number down and I would look at that. And, and, and past a certain weight, if anyone, you know, who hasn't really pushed themselves in, in powerlifting, you know, beyond a 600 squad or deadlift or whatever, it all feels bad. Yeah, it's terrifying. So you too. don't you don't actually know, right? You yeah. need you need that outside feedback to be yeah. like, did that move okay? Like, can I go up? Because you're gonna feel. Because I know every time I walked <laughs> out from like an 800 pound squat, I'd be like, oh, that was the worst thing ever. <laughs> like that, I'm I'm done. I would like send it to Bass or like ask you like, hey, did that look good? And you're like, yeah, go up. Because I would have a number on my program, and it's like, yeah. oh, I got to squat how much today? And that yeah. that messes with your head. And, but when you have people that know you and you trust them and you can ask them for feedback, mm. they'll push you. And but then with, they'll get you there. Yeah, with that as well though, like you can become extremely reliant on someone else for your success. That's true. And you know, I went through an extended period of time as an athlete where I had a really solid training partner, but he was ten years older than me. He couldn't train to the same intensity that mm. I was training to. And I would at times end up sandbagging myself because if he said he wasn't coming to the gym today, then that was the perfect excuse for me not to. And I think this is the thing when you're in an individual sport and the importance of having a team, i.e. more than one person that's part of a community so that if there's one person falling back, someone else picks up this kind of slack is so important because if you're in part of a team like in the team sport football team there's enough people in there to ensure that everyone's moving in the right direction as long as you all have the same belief but if you're in a one-on-one 
individual sport and you got one training partner it can hold you back yeah well, it's like you in your head and then one other person like i i don't know about you guys but you walk out from something heavy you're gonna be doubting yourself a little bit whether oh, you want to acknowledge sure. it or not so it's good to have at least one person some positive influence outside of you to, to give you that confidence or just tell you to like it's okay to proceed almost like allowing you to be confident what's up everyone it's your favorite podcast producer nick tricana here to give you a word from our incredible sponsor over at element because we love y'all so much over here at hybrid unlimited we're going to hook you up with a free sample pack of element just for you each sample pack includes eight grab-and-go packets in a variety of different flavors all you have to do is go to drinkelement.com hybrid that's drinklmnt.com hybrid you know what else was really motivating for me as someone who's been in the sport you know, in strength sports for a long time, starting when I was a kid in weightlifting and then powerlifting later on, is when new people come into the sport and start closing the gap on you. Like, I remember when you started, you had started, a, you know, a couple years later than me, and then when you started moving some real weights, I was like, wait a second, what, what the fuck, what's this guy's Wilkes? Yeah. I'm looking it up, and I'm like, oh, Christ. Yeah. Like, he's Wilkesing over 500 now, so I need to, like, there's no way I can go to a powerlifting meet and not Wilkes yeah. at least five. That's like a powerlifting Sinclair, yeah. you know, because you, yeah. you go to, uh, you train with Bass. But, yeah, it's like that kind of stuff is, is super motivating. So then what's your thoughts on whether you think it's important that to be a good coach, you have to have been a good athlete first? Like, because I think, like, a lot of people always have this, mm. like, worry that, okay, well, they've reached a certain standard as... Um, an athlete and then automatically people go well why does that mean that he's going to be a good coach but equally people who haven't reached the highest level um, as an athlete they go well no I'm just a better coach Um, what's your take on it? I think it's I think there's always outliers you know I'll put that out there to start but in general I don't think that just being someone who participated in the sport and trying really hard is enough I think you need to achieve some level of, of success in the sport where people can look around and say that like that's somebody who, you know, who had aptitude, had, uh, you know, the work ethic, went through intelligent enough training because you need all three of those things to get to a certain level. And if you've reached that level, you can safely say most people have, have those things, right? Mm. Because if, look, you can be a guy that snatches 100 kilos and you trained your whole life and you, you, know, you tried really, really hard and just couldn't get stronger than that. It's like, it's very hard to be a person like that, I think, and then go and relate to somebody who's now competing on an Olympic stage and is snatching 200 kilos. You 100%. don't know, your, your career was although you may have taken it seriously, the stakes were never high enough for you to relate to an athlete at a high level. And it doesn't have to be the Olympics, but it's like, did you at least, did you have a decent placing at nationals? Did you do something that someone can look at who knows the sport and be like, that guy was a decent lifter? I think it relates massively to the point that you guys were just talking about, that after, you know, squatting 600 pounds or 800 pounds, whatever it may be, like, knowing and understanding what that weight feels like when you're trying to coach or teach someone through it i think that is irreplaceable as a coach because if someone comes to me and goes suddenly i want to clean and jerk 200 kilos i know i've been through that journey but Mm -hmm. for the earlier part of my career i was coached by a female lifter 
and incredible technical coach had been to the Olympic Games had a lot of those components that you talked about as being important but it becomes a very different point when you're teaching someone to clean and jerk 160 kilos versus 120 yeah it feels different mm -hmm. the type of training is different the dependency on strength is different ability to recover all different. of these things that were things that she may have never been able to relate to at that point which meant that by having someone that had lifted to that level and had an understanding of what that actually felt like and the importance of the accessory movements when you're moving that type of weight all of these other components that potentially that coach would have done for me was really important yeah and, and I, I noticed that step up when i changed coaches for sure and like i i've been through the same you know when i was kind of like climbing through the years of powerlifting and even before that weightlifting when i was doing weightlifting i had a coach that was like very technical and i kind of had this tall strong but like unrefined way of lifting and the thing that you should see the old pictures of him as a weightlifter don't. pretty hilarious, pretty hilarious. <laughs> like a hundred, literally a hundred pounds lighter <laughs> but it, it was that point where this particular coach who was good at weightlifting and he was very technically proficient and you know understood programming theory and exercise selection things like that but the thing that this guy was missing was this confidence and kind of knowledge of what it takes to kind of like, mm. to your point what you you were just mentioning like get to that next level get yeah. to that level of strength and also instill confidence in somebody you know for somebody who's not entirely confident in their own lifting abilities. I feel like it's very difficult to transfer yeah. that knowledge to somebody you're teaching. Like, you know, when I was working with Steph, like it was nonstop, like, no, like you're gonna, it wasn't even an option. It was like, you're yeah. going to do this. But I think we're very lucky now that we live in a world where you can access if you want and you've got the budget to the best in the world. Like it's mm -hmm. only been in the last five to 10 years of online coaching and programming. Yeah. Could you, if you had unlimited budget, afford to get the best coaching, you know? And even so, still at least the amount of free content and good content. I was just going to say, even if you don't have the budget, yeah, educators on put out now yeah. Is, yeah. is crazy. Like it's stuff that you'd never be able to listen to or learn from previous. But I think there's that balance now where there's so much free content that people almost don't appreciate the value in in what you're giving them sometimes. There's a lot yeah. to sift through. You right. know, there's a lot of people that talk very confidently and speak as if they understand. And it's, you have to find the right person that is under, or able to convey the proper knowledge in a way that like resonates with you. I right? think that's the key point, like you said, that resonates with you because everyone's different. And I always say there's not one right way to be a great Olympic weightlifter. And sometimes you can say this, you can get the same outcome with five different cues or five different ways of explaining mm -hmm. it. And only one of them will resonate to that individual and one different one will resonate to you. And I think for me, that's one of the most important things that defines you as a good coach is having the vocabulary to speak to multiple different peoples and explain the same thing in multiple different ways so that it can be understood by anyone. Yeah, I, I can't remember who, told, who said this to me, but they were talking about the weightlifting community and they're like, honestly, everybody's just doing the same thing and calling it different things. And it's really true. Like you, you, certain parts of your style in weightlifting might be different, but there's a few key components, right? That like are on You can't reinvent. It's yeah. just weightlifting. Right? It's like you're, you're going to make contact at the hip. You're going to, you know, 
you're, there's a, you're gonna ideally, you know, ex, extend, extend and finish yeah. your pull. Like there's a bunch of things that you just, that's what you're gonna do. And it's like the way you frame it, you can say 10 different cues to an athlete and it could be the ninth or 10th one that, that this sticks that makes a difference. So mm. Let me, I'm gonna throw this question out there to you guys because you're much more connected to the world of the internet than I am at this point. But in terms of coaching and content, do you feel like a lot of people that are selling coaching and offering different you know coaching services, they're overcomplicating and trying to kind of pad this this proven concept with like frivolities. Do you know what? Lack of a better way to say it. <laughs> Before you asked that question, I thought you were going to ask what's that the biggest problem you see with people that are doing online content. I would have said exactly that. No, let's not go down that road. They, <laughs> no, but they, they over they overcomplicate something, yeah. you know. And one of my like favorite quotes is the quote from Einstein: "If you know something well enough, then you can explain it simply." And I think that mm-hmm. people go out of their way to sound smart by speaking on a level that no one else can fucking understand other than them in order to i guess prove or add i'm trying to think of the right word i'm looking for here but to the price point that they want to charge by making it sound super smart and super technical then it's kind of worth it right whereas i've always been a massive believer of keeping things simple and giving people education that they can actually relate to as being so important yeah honestly the and and I think that obviously a balance of education and actually doing things in practice is optimal. But the best coaches that I've ever had in weightlifting, especially, were guys with no background in exercise science. Mm-hmm. You know, like guys who just lived it. It was their profession, breathed it, all that stuff. Right? It's like who's going to be the best race car driver, the engineer who builds the car or the guy who actually races the car, right? The guy might have a full education in, in putting together an engine and knows how it works and knows on paper what you're supposed to do. But it's like until you get behind the wheel and you do that thing and you do it really well, it's like how, how well can you actually speak to the task? Yeah, I always have a problem with people like posting content and trying to give advice with charts and graphs and all this fancy stuff and it's it's missing the point especially when you look at something like like weightlifting or or more so even more so powerlifting that is fairly simple right right it's like why are there 45 minute like tutorials on on how to move your hips and set up the squats like it's not breathing yeah it's like just breathe (laughs) (laughs) you have a belt brace against it yeah, yeah. Take it I think down. it's the it's like you said it's the it's the simple thing and I did four years at university studying weightlifting like when I uh, say that to people they're like you did four years looking at fucking weightlifting yes <laughs> I've done it and I'm probably one of the only people in the world that's studied great four years in the weightlifting okay and you know for everything that I understood about the technical side of Olympic weightlifting like now it's great to have that for an example because there is a few people out there and there's coaches out there that do like to go to a little bit of a deeper level of understanding which is great mm. but has it made me a better coach knowing everything that i know about olympic way of thing and having studied it probably not but at the end of the day having that knowledge is good just at the point that if anyone ever wanted to challenge me on any of those sorts of things yeah. i can flex on them as well so right. so i gotta ask what what is the thing that's <laughs> most notably impacted your ability to be a good coach 
I think one of the majority of the people that I now work with, uh, CrossFit athletes and people that are getting into weightlifting after the age of 25 years old. Now, that in itself is a completely different ball game to the way that myself and the majority of every elite level weightlifter in the world got into the sport. I started sport when I was 11 years old. My mobility was great. I could train five days a week. I didn't have a missus. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a desk job. It was eat, sleep, and train, okay? Now, one of the biggest hurdles for people that get into the sport later in life is the fact that they can't achieve the positions that are required of them to be an efficient weightlifter when they first start. So then if you apply the same coaching method that majority of people teach with, the old school weightlifters teach with now, to the 25-year-old, it doesn't work. So a massive part about what I had to do when I became a coach and started to identify the fact that the method that I learned with wasn't speaking to the people that were in front of me was modernize the way in which weightlifting was taught. And for me, I've spent a lot of time kind of restructuring the way that I teach someone in the sense that I put that bit in before my first lesson to ensure that they can move well first before they touch the bar. Because if you can achieve the positions that are required of you as an Olympic weightlifter, i.e. the bottom of a snatch, have comfortably stand with a barbell above your head, um, and have coordination, fundamentals of coordination before you start weightlifting, weightlifting is quite easy. People won't get injured. They'll be able to perform the techniques that require of them. But the things that prevent people is the fact that they haven't done that bit first. So a massive part about where I put my focus now as a, as a coach is towards that so that the method in which people learn when they pick up weightlifting actually speaks to them. So you're priming them for success. And it, it's cool that you don't think that the way that you learned is necessarily the right way because you'll see that people fall into that mental trap. They're like, this is how I did it. And this is how you're going to do it. Otherwise, you won't achieve. Yeah. Every whatever. old school weightlifter is like right. that, but it doesn't work. <laughs> That'd be like throwing. If you ever see the old Bulgarian programs, so just be like throwing like what people do, a 25 year old dude with a desk job into a Bulgarian program, maxing out. People do that. People do that. I know that's, that's, that's the fucking problem. Well, those, it's because somebody, or maybe it's just them, but somebody is an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Or they just bought into this idea. It's like it's like. Or they just never. They've never. They, they never don't saw know anything anybody. different in their career, right? They're like, this yeah. is the way we were taught. It worked for all of us. And it could so just be. An if old it doesn't school, work for you, you're the problem. Right. Like some think. old school mentality, being like, no, you're gonna stretch twice a day. <laughs> yeah. You're gonna squat six yeah. times a week, like. Because it once worked, and this is the thing with, I think, our sports in the nature of our strength sports, is because they've, they're so old school, they've never been modernized in their approach. And for me, that's why I took it upon myself. I thought if anyone's gonna do it, it's gonna be me, being fortunate enough to capture such an audience that I do in the, in the modern weightlifting world space. I wanted to be the one to be able to actually give someone an, an approach that enabled to wait, make weightlifting accessible to the masses. And that is ultimately my goal and what I do is so that any person, whether they're 20, 60, 50 years old, with the right approach, could do Olympic weightlifting successfully. Where do you see Olympic weightlifting having overlap with other strength sports? Like by, you know, just by time period now, I'm, I'm a powerlifter, right? But I started as a weightlifter and I found powerlifting 
honestly, in the early days of these guys, just watching mm. stuff on, on, uh, was on Instagram, like years ago, you know, I was like, oh, I'm gonna try deadlifting, right? So mm -hmm. I transitioned and, you know, obviously found success in that sport, but. When we well, met, he was running our hybrid deadlift program. Yeah, Remember I was deadlifting Ironics? four days a week. Would have killed myself if I did that now. Oh yeah, well, that, that was not a pro <laughs> <laughs> that was not a program for guys deadlifting nine hundred pounds. No, 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 no. But uh, I, I feel like having that background in Olympic weightlifting. Uh, don't come over here and strangle me for that. But I feel like that having that background in weightlifting gave me a lot of uh, I don't know leg up, I guess. Oh, dude, you, can't, you can definitely go weightlifting to powerlifting and have all the prereqs for powerlifting, and mm -hmm. the other way does not work. No, it does not work at all. But this is the, this is the thing, and one of the biggest things that, you know, I, on the YouTube world or the spaces that are kind of still old school, I'll often put up stuff and I'll say, you know, mobility is one of the most limiting factors. And they go, you don't need mobility for weightlifting. The strongest people in weightlifting can could be strongman or powerlifters. But... You can have someone that can walk into a gym that can deadlift 900 pounds or whatever it may be, but can't clean 160 kilos. But why can't he clean, jerk 100, or clean 160 kilos? What is the main thing that will prevent someone from doing that if you've got that strength? It's your mobility or your ability to achieve the technique, which is limited sure. by that, which is why that is the biggest thing that people struggle with when they get into the sport well i bet if you were to ask a powerlifter, and if you were to during you know my strongest i probably wouldn't have found any use for it but back to my original question like where do you see the overlap being beneficial for other people to learn how to proficiently weightlift yeah i think weightlifting from a power point of view um will carry over into so many other sports do you need to be able to do a full snatch Probably not. Would power clean suffice? Probably. <laughs> so I think there's elements of Olympic weightlifting that will carry over without having to put yourself through the technical demanding aspects of Olympic weightlifting mm -hmm. um, that would be completely sufficient. I think when people say, oh, you need to be able to master a full squat snatch to be able to be a great sprinter, probably wouldn't go to that extreme. But implementing things like power cleans power jerks would be great because it's an easier point of entry to mm -hmm. be able to go into doing those exercises than it is the full classical movements well there's and there's an opportunity cost to learning any skill right so it's like how much time as a sprinter are you going to put into trying to perfect this other sport entirely which is weightlifting right or as a basketball player or a hockey player and speaking from experience we trained a lot of high-level hockey players back in Canada, back in the day when I was a strength coach. And, uh, you know, we would teach them power clean, like you said. And then the other thing that we found was like the most uh, applicable and also easiest thing to, uh, like, coach. Because this is an aside, but hockey players in general, although they're great at the task of playing hockey, if you were to take like every sport and have them do a fitness test, a hockey would be like the worst one, guys. Because you're you're in a boot, you're in a boot, you're in these really <laughs> uncomfortable positions. Their a lot of their ankle mobility sucks. A lot of them get away with if if you're not fast, you can be a really good stick handler or have great skating technique. Or there's a bunch of different variables. But the thing that we found, aside from power clean, that was really good for them was uh, push press. Hmm. Just like a whole body, you know, what are you emulating? 
the the movement you do when you jump, movement you do if you have to throw something, like like you know any of that sort of stuff, any sort of pressing, you know, pushing guys, all that kind of yeah. stuff. It really carried over. I played ice hockey for two years when I was younger. No way. <laughs> in the UK? Yeah, in the UK for the Bracknell Bees. And wow. yeah, I totally get where you're coming from in terms of the limiting factors of hockey, but also understanding where weightlifting now and reflection would play a huge part in that. But I think it's, like you said, more than anything, what I found really interesting about what you said then is weighing up the investment cost to sure. ratio, like, you know, um, I thought that was really interesting. I think with anyone implementing weightlifting into their sport, taking that into account, okay, how good do I need to be at this for it to be beneficial before it's becoming overkill? Yeah, like yeah. at the extreme of anything, like you're not going to see Half Thor or Julius Maddox doing a snatch. It's, no. it's, but I feel like the same token, they still have to practice some form of that movement or could, and it would be beneficial in, in a way, you know, carry over. Mm to being more proficient at the sport that they practice and the movements that they practice. Well, you, you see, a, like, to speak to Hathor, for example, they're doing exercises that are very similar in nature to a snatch, like mm. like a, a keg toss over a, yeah. a thing, right? Like, what are you doing there? You're starting from the ground. Using the hips. <laughs> you're doing triple extension. Yeah. You know, you're, you're finishing in an, ex, an explosive movement. So, yeah. like... Could be a carryover, yeah. Yeah, and, ma and also yeah. maybe that's something that you can teach to an athlete that's one lower risk. Yeah. Right? If you're looking at other sports, you could do that that's lower risk. It's a lot easier to teach. It accomplishes the same thing, and you don't need to spend like a thousand hours teaching yeah. somebody, you know, how to receive a snatch in the bottom position right. when yeah. they might have limited but mobility. This is it. And I think it's understanding where your weakness lies and programming your training around where your personal weakness is. But also not being afraid to try things that are slightly outside of the box. And for me, when I started to spend a lot of time coaching CrossFit athletes, I was like, I don't know enough about this sport, so I'm going to do it myself. And I couldn't believe the benefit that I had from starting to learn how to do a handstand walk, a handstand push-up, developing stability and strength outside of a range of motion that I w was so linear that I was used to and the benefit that had to me as a lifter. Training um, exercises like lunges and things like that, single leg stuff that I would never have normally done as an Olympic weightlifter. Like all the benefit of things that I actually found from CrossFit and strict gymnastics and what a great carryover that has to Olympic weightlifting mm -hmm. that I never would have if I didn't, wasn't open-minded enough to at least learn. And that's the thing. If someone saw Haffle tomorrow starting to do power snatches, everyone would be like, well, fuck, he's doing it. I'm going to go and start doing some power snatches too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But right now, if that was something that was voiced, yeah, Olympic weightlifting is going to be really beneficial for strongman. People would be like, what do you know, Sharp? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a catch-22, but I think the best thing with anything is being open-minded, at least trying it so that you understand it and then getting your opinion from it. I feel like you'll have a crossover with anything. Like if you learn, and I've always wondered this about weightlifting because I've noticed a lot of carryover to being a better weightlifter, the stronger I got. You know, I feel like if you're too dogmatic with your training regimen in any sport, it's thank you. Not detrimental to you, but there could be some hidden benefit that you don't realize 
if you were to try to do that thing, right? Like if you were to tell weightlifters like, hey, you know, what do you think about potentially cutting back on the number of times you snatched and clean and jerk every week and hit a couple more squat sessions that were, you know, a low bar squat? Why not try deadlifting instead of doing 50 clean pulls a week? You know, and again, I might be talking out of turn here, but I've always felt you're not, that. Like, and that's of such value that, you know, even for me when I was training with Sebastian, like he was like, why don't you try doing your drop down sets as low bar with a slightly wider stance, so you'll load your hips and your glutes a little bit more than how you normally squat because you sit so fucking upright, you're mainly recruiting mm-hmm. your quads when you squat this would be a great accessory squat well, and to you. Especially for a guy like you, who's a really strong squatter, but not as much in the, the deadlift, right? Like your pull yeah. is more limiting pull to shot, you. Yeah. So it's like, if you wanna work more posterior chain in a way that's not directly deadlift, that's gonna like kill you, low bar is a good option. Yeah, tell, me if, tell, tell me if you guys have experienced this, but the stronger your deadlift has gotten, at least there's this un, you, you, there's an unspoken like mental edge it gives you when it comes to picking up a clean and jerk. Cause like, I'll go pick up a clean and jerk like the other day, yeah. Power clean 170, yeah. which is probably more than I've ever power cleaned. And it's like, I know what mm-hmm. three times this feels like or two and a half times this feels like. So From it gives you this confidence. Approach, yeah. yeah, there's a confidence that comes with being stronger. And in powerlifting, I've always had a problem with young powerlifters and young weightlifters almost neglecting the fact that they need to do a shitload of hypertrophy work and actually build some muscle mass. Based like, of strength, yeah. If you look at all of us sitting around here, like... You know, we've all achieved some level of success in our respective disciplines. Like having a big base of, of a strong body, a sturdy body, and practicing different disciplines that make the body stronger is going to be nothing but beneficial to you. Yeah, and I totally agree. But this is the thing, like for me, the majority of people now that get into Olympic weightlifting, is strength the thing that's holding them back? No. Okay? Go As ahead. an elite level weightlifter, is strength the thing that prevents them from getting better? Yes. And this is the way your training changes mm. as you progress in point. terms of your training. Yeah. In your training knowledge, because like as a newbie or someone who's just starting out, which for me, anyone within the first five years of Olympic Way of Thing is a fucking noob. Okay. So <laughs> actually spending time building a consistent technique and movement pattern with the classical movements when you're a noob is far more valuable than squatting three to five times a week and getting stronger and stronger because you'll never get to utilize that strength you've got. However, once you've developed a good technique to a level that it can actually use all of the strength you currently possess and you're efficient, then spending the time, majority of my training now is doing squats and pulls and I snatch once a week and I clean and jerk once a week because I don't need to spend too much time refining my technique right now. That's the way I train. But for a beginner, it's the absolute flip side. You know what I think is actually interesting is so the philosophy that we started hybrid with was for what I would consider like the lifetime intermediate, right? So they're they're past that stage where uh, technique is what's holding them back, right? You see these people, they come into the gym every day, they've been training for three, four, five years, and they're making no progress, and they're snatching six times a week, and they're clean and jerking every day, and they're just weak, yeah. you know? And I think in uh, North America, this is what we saw back then, all the strength movements, like from the powerlifting side, were totally demonized. 
It's like, and I, and I was guilty of it too. When I was in, in like the, my best shape in weightlifting and training hard in weightlifting, I would see somebody do uh, a low bar squat and I'd be like, loser. If you I know? could go back now. <laughs> or, or like bench press, dude. Dude. Yeah. They, for real. Bench dude. pressing. Dude, <laughs> you te- literally, we were trained like to yeah, think to that, that if you did a, a, a bench press session, you'll never put your hands over your head again. <laughs> it's like, so true. It's like, so true. It's crazy, right? So it took an injury that took me out of weightlifting uh, and, and put me into powerlifting to realize like I didn't do weightlifting for maybe a year and I put almost a hundred kilos on my back squat over like a year and a half. Cause it was all, I was doing squat bench deadlift religiously training small love junior basically on repeat Oof. that whole time. Good. And it was Good hard job. as shit, but it was all I was doing. And I went back and the first time I went back, I was, this is after not An doing it at all. Infinitely better weightlifter. Well, I, I was able to, I was able to hit my maxes session one being super rusty, but you know, and then the, I was able to yeah. add to them after that. You know, and if I had my time again, Hayden, I would have done exactly that and just cycled my training to a point where there was a period during leading up to competition. I ran a weightlifting program and then with strength being my weakest point, I would have just purely spent six months on my next training block doing a strength program that was powerlifting based. Okay, maybe not putting as much emphasis on bench press but definitely mid to upper back or posterior chain work that would have worked equally as good where that may have been um, good morning or stiff leg deadlift as the accessory movement to the normal um, would have made huge benefit. I think people that are dogmatic about their focus on whatever the goal is, like let's say you want to be the world's best bench presser or the world's best squat or whatever, or the world's you know f- most formidable Olympic weightlifting athlete, I think it is scary to proposition them to take a break, do something different. It's like mm-hmm. weightlifter, I want you to take six months and powerlift. I want you to be so proficient with squat and deadlift and these different variations. Like imagine telling a weightlifter to do just like a, like a high rack pull, which is a powerlifting movement or like, right. a, like an elevated rack pull, whatever you want to call it, and transition them into that style of movement. Like I'm sure it would not only help with your recovery of your joints and all of the like brutality of training as a weightlifter, but it'll give you exposure to new kind of strength. And when you get back to weightlifting, like like you said, maybe the first few years if you're a noob, you don't want to do that. But as you get back to it, like you're not gonna forget yeah. how to snatch or clean and jerk. You're gonna be better at it when you get back. But do you know what? And this is the the toss up, right? And everything that we've said has been so relevant to the majority of people but at the end of the day it comes down to how much time have you got to actually invest in your training if you're training three times a week then your ability to actually add much extra variation into your training on top of what you're currently doing is very small anyway you know the more you train the more chance you get to add in variation that isn't going to absolutely hammer your joints but this is where like people undervalue the benefit of having something that is tailored or customized to you because like there becomes a point in your training after about three years where you need to start doing something that is actually tailored to you and your weaknesses because Mm -hmm. the rest of the time I should piss in the wind really in times of working out where you should be putting your focus like a template's not going to be applicable to certain people but even even a program that is custom to you like needs feedback from the athlete 
needs adjustment, right? Because I remember, you know, when I was training weightlifting, I wouldn't know what I'm doing that day until I showed up at the gym and my coach would say, okay. He probably didn't either. <laughs> yeah. No, no, and he wouldn't. He, he, he would say, he would go, you know, what, like, what did we, what did you do last time? How did it feel? Was it heavy? Uh, did you fail reps last time? You know, he'd ask me, like, what'd you do today? Were you walking all around downtown? Were you like, you know, he would, he would do a little overview of what I, what my readiness for that day was. And then after that, he would give me a, uh, you know, what the program for the day was, you know, and that's, that's maybe not realistic for everybody, but I think that even when people get a program that's written for them, they think my coach is the master. I have to do exactly what's written on paper. And they forget that there's a component of auto regulation. That's really important, right? Like if it says go to 80% and 60% feels like the heaviest you can absolutely do that day. It's like, Sometimes there's value to pushing through that, but sometimes there's value to being like, I'm just not ready for yeah. that kind of weight today. I love what you said just then, like readiness. Like, I think that that term for everyone to understand when they enter a gym is so valuable to understand that the things that you do outside of what you do in the gym can impact how you feel on a day ready to perform. And one of the, like, the simplest things that I always do, like if I'm following a program and it's percentage-based, is I look at a percentage sometimes, not as a percentage based off my lifetime max, but as an RPE. So if I'm like 80% three sets of three, yeah, I'll look at like, okay, well, 80% today is going to be at eight out of 10 RPE, which sometimes can actually be an actual fact like 65, 70%. But the desired stimulus is still going to be the same for yeah, a weightlifting program, 100%. which is sometimes what I think is the easiest way to yeah. combat that. But I think for any athlete to have an awareness of how they're feeling or their readiness when they go into the gym is really cool because I think at the time, like you said, your old school weightlifting coach might not have, or that concept of what he was doing with you by questioning you when you went to the gym Mm -hmm. would now probably be reflected as a really good way to kind of look at an athlete's preparation before training. But it's so undervalued, I think, in, in training full Think about it. Most people don't have this as their full-time job. Like, it's not mine. I, mean, I don't think any of us here just lift weights and don't do anything else beside that. It's not like you're not involved in other mm-hmm. business endeavors or what have you outside of it. So being realistic about how your recovery goes. Most people have families and kids and they have actual life obligations. It's like very few people are a powerlifting or a weightlifting monk. And all they do is lift sure. weights and go home and live in a bubble. Like nobody does. You know, you have a fight with your girlfriend or, you know, you didn't get good sleep that night or your boss was a jerk to you and then you feel like shit. So like, what can you do that day? And I think that's actually a pretty good business and life principle also. Like oh, yeah. some days you go to work and like all three of us here run our own businesses and you're like, all right, I might not feel super energetic today or I might feel a little tired or, or you know, I'm just not feeling that motivated, but what can I do to push the dial a little bit to the right you know what can i do to move things forward even if it's one thing because that one thing could put something else in motion two weeks or three weeks or a month down the line that you didn't even think of and it's it's a good principle even if you feel like garbage you know even if you could just move it just a tiny bit forward yeah just the just showing up principle yeah yeah exactly but i think equally not punishing yourself for those days when you do feel that because i think like social media and it's and it's way that it is makes us feel like a bag of shit for not yeah. never back what, down no yeah. <laughs> exactly like yeah. how many motivation fucking things do you see a day 
but like when equally we can sit here and say that it's actually okay when you have a day where I don't know you've been on a fucking night out you've had a few too many drinks you feel a bit dusty the next day when you go into the gym that's fine because you're not trying to complete the sport in a fucking day yeah. you know <laughs> it's, it's not a Mario Kart level <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's a fucking 10 year process and sometimes those little periods of relaxation or skipping a day from training because you feel like a bag of shit or because you filled up your life cup a lot yeah. is absolutely fine but I feel like people are pressurized by the elitists in our sport to be like you can't have a fucking beer you can't have a day off yeah, because someone else is training fucking harder than right. you and they're you yeah, it's like mean? you're not yeah, eating yeah. raw elk meat for breakfast and running at 4am it's like sorry Jocko like yeah, chill out David yeah, it's like, um, yeah. <laughs> it's like normal people don't get to do that like the thing that doesn't get glamorized on the internet is the day that you sit in bed or like sit on your couch with your dogs or your family and you just don't do much except eat carbs yeah. Like there's there's no there's no promoted Instagram post yeah. that's selling that day, but you know when you're you re- recovering. <laughs> Re- lifetime recovery guy. All yeah, he does yeah. is recover. All right, don't take my idea. <laughs> you know, but like that to me, like you or traveling, you know, or doing something that's outside of like grinding yourself into a pole because so much yeah. of today's uh I guess voice of the culture is promoting this idea that if you're not constantly working, constantly making money, constantly pushing yourself in the gym, you know, if you don't look like Instagram ready all the time, then there's something wrong with you. And it's like, you know, this might be my personal opinion, but I feel like that's not true to the core of, of how most people live their lives. Because, you know, it's most people are not going to be this top tier anything, number, you know, number one in their sport, but. I think striving for excellence and recognizing at the same time like that one day a week or once every two weeks when you need to just lay in your bed and stare at the ceiling and just be okay with that it's not a bad thing you should never punish yourself for that internally or externally mm. and like knowing how to filter the voice of, of our culture these days because I don't know about I you guys I still don't know how to do it sometimes you know like, well sometimes you don't Yeah, I get anxiety if I'm relaxing and I'm like I'm on pretty much on holiday right now and me and my missus were sat by the pool earlier today and neither of us can relax we were like there's work that can be done and I'm like fuck me Sonny like give yourself just 30 minutes you're in Miami you're in Miami like with your missus sat by the pool to just relax but like it takes me so long to switch out of that mindset that is kind of programmed into us to just go 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 to be able to switch to mindset to be like there's just as much value in you having 30 minutes to think mm-hmm. or to just sit in the pool sit in the pool or in the sauna you know like or to do fuck whatever. all like the value isn't it isn't valued enough that of what that can do for you equally as spending 30 minutes staring at your screen cam you know yeah i actually want to i want to ask you more about the business side of things because i think there's nothing more tragic than somebody who's reached the highest level in the thing that they do, you know, and you see this a lot in sports where after that, you know, you have guys that have set world records in powerlifting or weightlifting or they've gone to the Olympics like you have, and then they get to the end of their career and they end up working some minimum wage job and there's just nothing for them after that fact. So you've done a really good job of pivoting from 
being a full-time Olympic weightlifter, that was something you poured your heart and soul into. It was all you cared about for a period of time. And now you're a successful entrepreneur with, with multiple different companies. And what was that transition like and how did you do that? Because hopefully somebody's listening who will is going down the path of what I was saying first and then yeah. you know, can do something like you're doing. Yeah, um, it's a great question. When I think back at the, the core reasons as to why I'm potentially driven from a business acumen more so than I would have been if I was just a weightlifter was the fact that my dad owned his own business and that was something that was installed into me from a very young age, like the how hard it was to work for yourself and own your own business, but also the benefit of doing that. So that was something that was in my early days was installed into me. Not only that, but the first person that ever sponsored me, Jeff, um, who ran an extremely successful business, I was surrounded by through a massive part of my upbringing and younger times as a, as a kid and as an athlete. And that had a huge impact on shaping me, but also understanding what I wanted to get from life outside of weightlifting. And I was very aware early doors that weightlifting was never going to make me a million dollars, like from being a weightlifter. And for me, like, I think one of the hardest things was tossing up the value of going to university because when you want to be an elite level athlete, if you're a footballer or footballer or soccer player in England, like if you make it, you don't need to worry about though. You're going to be fucking loaded. But in a sport like weightlifting, like regardless if you make it, having something else to fall back on is equally important. So for me, like as much as I didn't want to, going to university was something that I did and finishing university was really important to more so than anything like I said I studied weightlifting but having the understanding of how to learn and how to study was really valuable moving away from being an athlete to be able to apply that skill set to whatever I wanted to put my mind to after I finished sport. And I think what was important for me in the early days of first making my first bit of money out of Olympic weightlifting, which was through doing seminars and then eventually selling my first program, more than anything, reflecting on it now, like I said, five businesses later and success in various various of them, like it was about taking that step that I was scared to take because I worried about what other people would think. Like I remember releasing my first program or launching my first seminar. My biggest worry was what people would have thought of me, the fact that I decided to do that and that I wasn't the one that should be able to do that. Like, did you feel like it was selling out to the sport or worried that people would think you were a sellout to the sport of weightlifting? A little bit, but more so that I wasn't qualified or wasn't the mm-hmm. best person to be doing this. And I think that prevents a lot of people from finding success in whatever they want to Mm -hmm. because they feel like there's someone that's better qualified or someone else that could do a better job than them. But ultimately, if you don't put yourself out there to be like, fuck it, I'm going to give this a go and I'm not scared to fail, then, you know, what will be will be. But I think one of my most things I'm most grateful of, I guess, is a 
entrepreneur now is I've been at the point where I had absolutely nothing and I lost everything in my life as an athlete that nothing scares me now which for me as a entrepreneur and when I'm creating things and when I'm trying to continue to grow my businesses is a really fucking powerful tool because if the carpet was pulled from underneath me tomorrow and I had nothing all I've got is knowledge from all the mistakes that I've made and all the things that I've learned and all the things that I do differently now. And I think there's so much value in surrounding yourself with people that are doing what you want to do and learning from them. I've never been afraid to ask and learn from people um, and seek people that are smarter than me in order to develop myself as, a, as an entrepreneur outside of my athlete life. So in the business world, you know, that's one thing we all share in common here, right? So how, in your own words, would you describe going from being arguably on the highest level of weightlifting, the highest level of sport in your discipline? What skills and, and what knowledge did you take and apply to being an entrepreneur from basically standing on the world's biggest stage in your discipline uh, and what, what, what could you carry over? What did you find valuable to carry over? Yeah, I think that, you know, you, you answered it then yourself in a, in a sense because discipline is one of the most important things. You think about the core values that makes your business work really well in terms of consistency and discipline. They're traits that an elite sports person has to have as well. Um, and for me, it was being able to be strict to a process, follow a program, to study, to invest time and energy into um, a project, whether that project was to snatch 100 kilos or to hire my first staff member. Like applying those principles to running a business was really important and really valuable. And I think overcoming problems, you know, when you look at your lift and there's something that's going wrong every single time, you have to problem solve in your mm -hmm. ability to look at your technique. The same thing happens when you run a business, when something's not working correctly, you have to problem solve. And that's something that I learned a lot from being an athlete that carried over well to my businesses, is that. And I think outside of that, another skill that was really valuable for me was the fact that when something goes wrong, being able to overcome it quickly and move on productively. In the same way when you're in a competition and you miss a lift, you've got another lift to go and hit in two minutes. Yeah, you need yeah. to fucking pull your head out of the ass and move on. And that applies the same way to a dynamic business in the fact that there's things that can shit can hit the fan and you need to make a fast decision that's gonna pull you out the other way. For sure. And there's so many applicable skills that have carried over, but I've really do think that I've been so fortunate enough to surround my been surrounded by inspirational people in order to learn from and i can't put stress the importance of that enough to learn and listen to as many people as you can whenever i was younger and i was put in a room of people that knew more about a subject than me i'm just fucking all ears or i'm asking questions i don't care that i'm the one with the least amount of money in my pocket in this room or the one with the least amount of knowledge i want to learn from you guys tell me what you got you know, and that's something that I've done, but also continue to do now as an entrepreneur to pass forward my knowledge to other people. 
because there's so much growth to be had by sharing nowadays. So would you say if there was a young entrepreneur, somebody who's thinking about starting a business and they were thinking about all of the fear and anxiety, you know, we've all been there, right? What, what would be the most valuable piece of information you would want to impart on them based on your experience? Don't be scared to fail. Don't be scared to make a mistake. You know, I say that to my staff all the time. Like, I'd rather you fail and learn from it than never fail and take no and not run the risk, you know? I love that, and yeah. I think that people don't share their fails or the things that they mess up on enough, but they happen daily. I'm sure that you could tell me about one thing that went wrong today in your business that you made a mess up on, you know? And you've got to be doing that to be stretching yourself, like in terms of your skill set. That's got to be happening regularly in your business so that you're figuring shit out and learning from it. And I think for a new business owner, like never put yourself in a position where financially you might be running a risk by taking that gamble. But at the same time, that's sometimes the most valuable things that people that make the most amount of money or the most success in their business are the ones that's taking risk. I like that. That's very simple. And it's a, it's a message that anybody could take home, whether you're trying to start a business or you're, you're interested in weightlifting or powerlifting. It's, it's, it's almost having this uh, created self-confidence. You're going into something, you know, like I, I was in the same position when I first started out five plus years ago in my own business. And we operate in totally different worlds as far as our businesses are concerned, but the principles are the exact same, you know? I'm a young person in a field of business where it's almost archaic, you know, and it's it's unheard of to see somebody my age in the field that I'm in, in the real estate world. Um, and it's it's interesting that you touched on that one talking point of, of being okay with failing and be, honestly being okay with fucking up, being okay with making mistakes and kind of having the confidence that like every once in a while you will. Like obviously if it's something you know that it's like, policy not to do like, right, that's that might be a different discussion but mm-hmm. in broader level terms like making mistakes breaking stuff as you go like it might be a little bit new agey it might be more of a talking point for like this kind of new age entrepreneurial motivation yeah. stuff but i think that the principle remains the same right like in business if you have a client you know like you're gonna make mistakes sometimes it's about reflecting and learning not only from the mistake, but going forward, like how do I not do that again? And maybe I can learn something in order to actually make the overall experience for the customer or the client better. So their experience is better. And what I do as a, as a business person or you know, whatever is overall, like I've increased my abilities by 1% or half a percentage point, whatever. But I'm sure, you know, Hayden, you'll have things that you'll look back on from five years ago in hybrid that you would just fucking laugh at now. That <laughs> we used to do this this way, or that's what we used to do to market. You just fucking laugh. Like, but that's the fun of what we do. Mm-hmm. Like when I wake up in the morning, looking at where I was and where I'm wanting to go, and the, acknowledging the journey that I'm currently on as a business person or even as an, as an athlete, is the most fucking exciting thing. If I woke up tomorrow and I'd already completed everything, I'd be like, oh, cool, another day in paradise. You'd be so bored. <laughs> I know, You'd but, be like, bored. but it's exciting like yeah. to figure shit out. When things aren't going well in my business is the most enjoyable because I have to use my brain and I have to bring it back to that problem solving. Mm-hmm. And always like second point for anyone, just always acknowledge 
and this goes both sport and business, where you started, where you were six months ago, and where you are right now, because you'll gain a lot of, I guess, enthusiasm to keep pushing forward from that alone, you know? Yeah, I guess yeah. you have to have this kind of like existential awareness. And like, and that might be tough for a lot of people these days. And I'm, I agree with what you said, but it might be tough because, you know, perhaps they look on the internet and they see images of success and like, well, why aren't I, why aren't I there? You know, tell me, tell me if I'm wrong here, but living in Miami or living in any major metropolitan, very wealthy city, I think Miami is like a specially, uh, I don't want to say bad about it, but it's very apparent here that, you know, it's, it's easy mm -hmm. to lose track of your own success. And I know I'm guilty and I have been guilty of this before. Like, it's like, wow, you went from zero to where you are in this amount of time. And then you look around, you're like, oh, well, that guy's doing X. And I, you're like, well, why aren't I doing that? Or yeah. if you look at Sonny Webster on Instagram, you're like, why aren't I snatch or clean jerking 200 kilos? You know, it's, it's keeping things in perspective, I think is I also think, very yeah. important. I think it's understanding what, understanding what your parameters of success are because sure. everyone's a mm. extremely individual. And I think if you stay true to the things that are important to you, and like, cause I've got friends that have millions in the fucker bank account, but they would look at some of their friends that have nothing from a financial standpoint near what they've got, but they've got a wife, a kid, a roof over their head and go, wow, I wish I fucking had that. And that's what they deem success. So I think never be blinded by thinking success is purely about how many M's you've got in the account, how many staff members you've got, yeah. how many businesses you own, because sometimes success to people actually lies in the lifestyle that they live. Right. And I, mm -hmm. I said to Hayden the other night, I said that's something that became very apparent to me in the last six months, having been around some extremely successful people, I actually came away from my time spent with them, very proud of the life that I live with what I have versus yeah, these guys from a financial standpoint are in a completely different stratosphere to me. But I would argue that I live a more enjoyable life than them. Well, that's because I think you've defined what success and happiness means for you. And you've taken an honest, mm -hmm. reflective look at your life and say, I value this. Some people don't value a Lamborghini. And they're happy driving whatever car they're driving. But to, to peg your happiness and metric of success to owning a Lamborghini when you don't actually value it, but you're tricked into thinking that you do, that's a very fast way to live a life of like, misery. Well, because there's an endless amount of things. And there's sure. always the next thing. It's right. a never-ending process. Is, yeah, and this is what we were discussing the other day. There's a... Yeah very big difference between happiness and pleasure and pleasure and happiness are not the same thing, you know, and identifying that early doors is really important, but I can guarantee, you know, you've bought nice cars before, nice watches. It makes you feel good for that little <laughs> second. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the more and more you do it, you don't get that same no. pleasure yeah. from yeah, it. I mean, you can only, we talked about this, we were out the other night, you know, you can only own so many of whatever, and at a certain point, like, you're diminishing, or there is a diminishing return on your happiness, right? Like, if you have 16 Rolexes, I guarantee you the 17th one is not going to make <laughs> yeah. you very happy. No. Or the 7th BMW, because like, I know people, like, I've got 
several family members that are, you know, nine figure multimillionaires and like it's just this constant chase of of novelty. And that's really what it is. It's a chase of novelty and you're not really that satisfied. You know, if you have an Audi R eight and you buy a newer Audi R eight, like Okay, yeah, there's going to be a new touchscreen in it, but I guarantee you it's not going to make you as happy as the first time you bought it. Sure. I th- you might need that type of personality to achieve that level of wealth. Possibly, you know, yeah. But, like, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't yeah, know. it's not our position to make value judgments. Yeah. But yeah. I, think, I think what you guys are saying is really valuable for anybody listening that's starting out. And it's the underlying anything. thing that you define your own level of success and the things mm-hmm. that are important to you and as long as you sit by that you live a fucking happy life I love some heavy weights and go from there we went from we went from weightlifting to philosophy through the business <laughs> world all in one podcast and only a couple of cups of rum in <laughs> perfect man thanks for being on where, well, for where can people find you guys if you want to find me then I'd say head to Sunny Webster GB on Instagram and then hit the link in my bio and then you'll see everything that you need to know about me Join my email list for the mobility manual and the lifting zone, and it'll be extremely valuable for you. That was beautiful. Well done. That's a wrap. Good to see you, Sonny. Thanks, boys.